The following sermon was preached at Redeemer Church in Tumball, Texas. For more information, go to makingmuchofjesus.org. Good morning. For those of you who don't know, my name is Barry Pett, and I serve as one of the elders here at Redeemer. And I have the privilege today of uh, filling in and for Jeff, who is our, usually here. It was actually a little weird. First service, um, most of the time when I'm preaching, um, Jeff is out of town. He's in Florida or conference or somewhere, and it was like he was actually here for service. I was like, well, it was like a little intimidating. Um, <laughs> so, and then to make it worse, I was like, Jeff and Kevin and Lawson and Richard had spent this week in Florida at the Gospel Coalition Conference where, like, every, all the best preachers on the planet are, are there. So they've been listening to that all week. So I'm I'm kind of thinking that this morning will be kind of like a bucket of cold ice in their face to kind of <laughs> bring them back to reality. But um, today we're, we're going to be uh, continuing our study of 1 Corinthians where we've been for several weeks. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Our text today will be verses 8 through 21, but for context purposes, we're going to begin reading in verse 6. So 1 Corinthians 4 verses 6 through 21. And if you could, just please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. Verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you, if the Lord wills, And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod 
or with love in a spirit of gentleness. Pray with me. God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Your word, it is, it is breathed out by you and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So God, through my words today, would you open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your law? Father, teach us, train us, admonish us that through your word we may behold the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And it's in your holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, we've been in 1 Corinthians now for several weeks, and the first four chapters have largely dealt with the same issue, that being divisions in the church and, and the Corinthians boasting more in their association with human leaders than with Christ. And today's passage is really the conclusion of Paul's admonition on this subject, which means that finally next week we can look forward to a new subject. Of course, the new subject is sexual immorality in the church, but, so, but it's new, right? <laughs> so when I begin to prepare for sermons, I typically, what I like to do is to just start reading the passage over and over. And as I read it, I begin to ask questions. And I look for patterns, and I look for common ideas. And then in the pursuit of these answers to my questions, usually a theme or a sermon topic begins, begins to materialize. So as I, as I repeatedly read today's text, the part of the passage that kept jumping out to me was verse 15, which read, For though you have countless guides in Christ... You do not have many fathers. So I began to ask myself, who are these countless guides? And who besides Paul are their fathers? What's the difference between a guide and a father? Is a guide good? Is a guide bad and a father good? I wonder if I'm more of a guide or a father. And as I pondered and studied these questions, within the context of this whole chapter, I began to see that really this whole passage was more than just Paul's final admonition to stop dividing into spiritual leader cliques. But it is also just beautiful, magnificent model of discipleship. And that's what I want to explore with you today. You know, having, having been part of this church now from the very beginning, one of the things that I think I appreciate most it is that our mission has never wavered from making disciples and making much of Jesus. Every sermon, every class, every event, every ministry is intentionally designed to lead to this end. So today I want to use this text to focus specifically on what it means to make disciples. I mean, you know, making disciples is a phrase I think that most of us are, are pretty familiar with, especially if you've been around here for very long. But as I thought about it, I began to wonder if it has almost become more of a cliche, a churchy word that we use that we don't really think about. 
I mean, for some, making disciples means leading others to Christ. To others, it may is something that you do in your missional communities. Or maybe it's something that is mostly done by vocational pastors. And my prayer is that through our text today, that all of us will come away with a more accurate understanding of what it means to make disciples and a clear vision of how we accomplish that in our everyday lives. So, before we get into the nitty-gritty of what it looks like to make disciples, I think it's important to take a second and briefly make sure that we clearly understand what it means to be a disciple. Before we can make something, it's good to know what we're called to make, right? So let's look at what it means to be a disciple. I think in simplest terms, Scripture would describe a true disciple as three things. Someone who follows Christ, someone who knows Christ, and someone who imitates Christ. To become a disciple of Jesus, one must first decide to follow him. What does that mean? In Luke 9.23, Jesus tells us that if anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So clearly, following Christ involves much more than acknowledging him as a, as a historical figure or even as God. Following Jesus means that we abandon our plans, our dreams, our sovereignty over our life. It is acknowledging our sinful rebellion against God and humbly submitting to him to cleanse us of all unrighteousness and to transform us into his image. But Jesus makes it clear that following him involves more than denying ourselves. Because he says also to take up our cross daily. What does that mean? I mean, taking up your cross paints a kind of a horrific picture of of death. And he says that we are to do this daily. So what are we crucifying daily? Two things, sin and self. Romans 6, 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And in Ephesians 4, we read that to be crucified is to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So a disciple is one who first follows Christ. And secondly, a disciple is someone who strives to know Christ. In Philippians 3, 8 through 11, it paints one of the most beautiful pictures of a disciple in, in, in all of Scripture. And Paul says in verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them in, as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Why? That I may know him 
and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That is a portrait of a disciple. A disciple follows Jesus. A disciple knows Jesus. And finally, he imitates Jesus. In Luke 6.40, it tells us that a disciple is not uh, a disciple is not greater than his teacher. But everyone, when fully trained, will be like his teacher. And in John 13, 14 through 15, Jesus tells his disciples at the Last Supper, after washing their feet, he says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you too ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, and you should do just as I have done for you. So, as we begin to examine how we make disciples, we know that what we are called to make are people who follow Christ, who pursue Christ, and who strive to obey and imitate Christ. So, with, uh, with that context, let's jump back to our text and go back to verse 15 and 16 as kind of our, our anchor verses. Verse 15, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. So at first glance, I think the obvious conclusions we can draw from this is that, that spiritual guides are good, but being a spiritual father is better. And we should strive to be spiritual fathers as well. So Paul, in essence, is saying that, hey, guys, you have a ton of people giving you spiritual advice. Some translations use the word 10,000 instead of countless. He says, but I'm your spiritual father. I led you to Christ, and I am committed to leading you to maturity in Christ. I'm all in with you. And my desire is that you will grow to be like me and grow to be spiritual fathers as well. Now, we're going to spend most of our time today examining disciple-making as a spiritual father or a parent to be gender-sensitive. Ladies, you're not off the hook. But, but I should point out that I don't believe that the point of this text is to tell us not to be spiritual guides. I mean, the type of disciple-making that Paul describes on this test cannot be done with every person in your life. Not possible. Like, you know, I can handle three kids. Give me a thousand. Forget about it, right? Paul urges us in Ephesians 4, he says, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love. This is what we do with everyone. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5 to let your light shine before others so that they may see your works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So just like salt impacts food and light impacts darkness, we should strive with our behavior and our words to be spiritual guides and influences to everyone we come in contact with. But there's some people in our lives 
that Paul is urging us to go beyond being a spiritual guide or influence and be more like a spiritual father. So first, and maybe the most obvious attribute of a spiritual father that we see in this passage is that you must have kids, right? I mean, parents without kids doesn't exist. And Paul considers him their spiritual father because he played an integral role in their new birth in Christ. Anyone who has witnessed the birth of a child or even an animal, you know the awe-inspiring wonder that comes when you experience seeing the miracle of life happen right before your eyes. And it's especially true when it's your own kids. I mean, I've had the privilege of seeing a lot of really cool things in my life, but I can tell you nothing touches witnessing the birth of each of my three kids. It is at once exhilarating, terrifying, and completely divine. And I was, I was acutely aware that I had very little to do with their creation and nothing to do with their formation or birth. But as their father, I, I immediately felt this a deep love and a connection to them, as well as a responsibility to care for them and to lead them to become mature and responsible adults. And you see the same depth with Paul in our passage. He doesn't talk to them like someone who is just giving helpful advice. No, it's personal to him. He sees himself as a spiritual father. Their successes are his successes, and their failures are his failures. Now, I should point out that that spiritual parenting here is not just limited to those whom you witness or lead to faith in Christ. Remember, disciple-making is helping people follow Christ, know Christ, and imitate Christ, right? Right? So you can become a spiritual father at any step along the journey. Those of you who have been here um, several years will remember one of the the early members, one of the founding members of of, of Redeemer, John Sokolowski. And uh, Soko, he was was an amazing disciple maker. He was awesome at, at challenging people, especially young men to a deeper and more authentic walk in Christ. In fact, my son-in-law, Gabriel, was one of the first ones who was discipled by him. And and, uh, to this day, Gabe will say that he holds John in as high a regard as a spiritual father as he does his dad as his biological father. Why? Because even though John didn't have the privilege of leading him to Christ, he was deeply and personally committed to seeing him grow in his knowledge and in his likeness to Christ. Now, secondly, and again, this may be stating the obvious, but just like any parent, the next attribute of spiritual fatherhood is to love deeply. You see, Paul, Paul loved these churches, and he loved the people that he discipled. In verse 14, he refers to the Corinthians as his beloved children. And in verse 16, he refers to Timothy as his beloved child in the faith. 
And nowhere is this love more vividly portrayed than in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 through 8, where Paul says, listen to this, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. You see, love is the fuel that drives disciple making. If those whom you disciple do not know first and foremost that you love them sincerely and deeply, then as 1 Corinthians so clearly tells us, it means nothing. And you are nothing but an annoying noisemaker. Another attribute that we see of a disciple, maker, that we see in this passage is his ability to discern and the willingness, willingness to lovingly admonish. Discern and lovingly admonish. Now, my wife... Carolyn is amazing when it comes to being discerning with our kids. She can cut through cover-ups and smoke screens like they don't exist. I mean, there's been times that, that I've suspected that our kids were kind of up to something and kind of messed up and were, and, and were covering their tracks. But I, I wasn't totally sure. So therefore, I was a little hesitant to totally call them out on it just in case I was wrong. Oh, but not Carolyn. <laughs> she wasn't armed with any more facts than I was. But she would jump right in and she'd say, I know exactly what you did. So you, you might as well just start confessing right now or it's going to get a whole lot worse. <laughs> and then there would be this like moment of awkward silence. And I'm thinking, oh boy. And they're thinking, hmm, I wonder if she's bluffing. <laughs> And then there would finally be, after this moment of silence, there would finally be this, fine, I did it. And I would just be standing there thinking, dang, she's good. (laughs) And 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 that's what we see going on in this passage. You see, even though Paul wasn't in Corinth, hadn't been there for a while, he was acutely aware of what was going on in their church and in their hearts. He was aware of their prideful divisions. He was aware of their puffed-up egos. And he was aware of their big talk and their little actions. And like any good parent and any good disciple-maker, he cared about them enough to lovingly confront them with it. You see, we see this played out at both ends of our text today. Now, don't get fooled by Paul's sarcasm in verses 8 through 10. He is not patting them on the back in these verses. He's calling them out. Listen to it. Verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Hear the sarcasm? For I think that God has exhibited us, us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. And in case you still think he's giving them attaboys, look at verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved 
children. He sees it, he loves them, and he's calling them on it. Like a loving parent that sees their kid making wrong choices, he cares enough to confront them and speak the truth to them. You see, a disciple maker doesn't avoid conflict for fear of offending someone. Love does what's in another's best interest. So you admonish them in love. And as Jeff has shown us in recent weeks, the Corinthian church was a hot mess. I mean, they had fooled themselves into thinking that they were model Christians and a church, but it was far from the truth. It was like they were looking at themselves in one of those carnival mirrors that can, you know, make a 400-pound man look like he weighs a buck 50. And Paul, is, what is he doing? He's, he's holding up a mirror so they can see for themselves what they really look like. And as we see at the end of the passage, he doesn't just admonish them. He loves them enough to hold them accountable. Look at verses 18 through 21. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? <laughs> I don't know about you, but for me, this brings back flashbacks to my childhood. And I can still hear my mother say, Barry Michael, Pat, when I come back in this room, this room better be spotless or I swear, boy, I will whoop you into the day after tomorrow. <laughs> Anybody heard that before? <laughs> I told you disciple making was a lot like raising kids, right? But as Paul Harvey used to say, now for the rest of the story. Since 2 Corinthians likely comes after 1 Corinthians, I think it is highly possible that Paul was referring to his, his admonishments in our text today in 2 Corinthians 7 when he said in verse 8, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. That's what making disciples looks like. Now, of course, discipleship is more than admonishing. And we see in verse 17 that he also cared for them by spending much of his time preaching and teaching them and all around and he didn't just call out their sin. He also affirmed what they did well. I mean, going back to chapter 1, we see the kinder, gentler side of Paul. Beginning in verse 4, he tells the Corinthians, I give thanks to God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that making disciples is characterized by loving, by teaching, by affirming, by discerning, and by admonishing. 
And before we close, I want to look at one more attribute that our text reveals. Disciples who make disciples are role models. Going back to our anchor verse in verse 15, we read, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Then look what he says next. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Making disciples is as much about demonstrating how to follow Christ as it is telling them. I think maybe the the most concise and powerful summary of of gospel disciple-making is found in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, where Paul expands on this plea in our text today by saying, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, if you don't remember anything else I say today, remember this verse and ponder how it applies to you. Because you see, this verse is not not just the heart of making disciples. It's the heart of Christianity. I can tell you as elders of this church, our passion and desire is to live the kind of lives that we can stand before you on this stage and behind this pulpit and with credibility and integrity say, imitate us as we imitate Christ. And then we pray that you'll be able to say the same thing to those that you're leading. In verse 17, it illustrates the full life cycle of making disciples. Because right after he tells the church in verse 16 to imitate him, he follows it by saying, that's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. This is the picture of a disciple who makes disciples who makes disciples. This is the gospel version of that old Michael Keaton movie, Multiplicity. Anybody remember that? (laughs) Where Keaton tries to kind of leverage his time by making copies of himself. Now, of course, Keaton's attempts to multiply himself went very, very badly. Especially when Steve was created, who was a copy of a copy, right? (laughs) In contrast, though, Paul's model of multiplicity turned the world upside down. You see, what he was telling the Corinthians was that I'm not able to be with you right now, but I have trained and discipled Timothy to be exactly like me, so much so that if you imitate Timothy, you're imitating me. And since I'm striving to imitate Christ, you will, in effect, be imitating Christ as well. That's what making disciples looks like. And finally, and I may lose some of you on this, but let's not gloss over what he's asking them to imitate. Look at verse 11. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands, When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. 
Verse 16. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Who's with me? (laughs) I mean, this may not be great salesmanship, but it certainly gives credibility to his statement that we just read in 11.1, to be imitators of him as he is of Christ. Why? Scripture clearly says he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and they took the reed and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. If anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Make no mistake here. Making disciples is not selling rainbows and lollipops. It's costly. It's always been costly. Most of us in this room, to this point, have been spared the hatred and the persecution that typically goes along with being a disciple of Christ. But I don't think I have to tell you that those days may be quickly coming to an end, right? The level of hatred for Bible-believing evangelical Christians in America is growing by the day. And given the way that things are going, the prospect that any one of us could end up being beaten, imprisoned, or even killed for our faith is no longer hard to imagine. See, making disciples cannot only be dangerous, but it will be costly And it will be messy. We are sinful people living in a sin-infested world. And gospel discipleship means jumping in with both feet where people are drowning in sin and trying to carry them out through the power of Christ working in us. It's messy. It's costly. It'll cost your time. It'll cost your energy. It will cost you your comfort. Hear me. Making disciples and making much of Jesus is not a catchy phrase, nor is it a part of our lives. It is our lives. It's what we exist for. When we get up in the morning, we really only have two things on our to-do list. Make much of Jesus 
and make disciples. We make much of Jesus by filling our heart and mind with him on a daily basis. It's not something we do on a Sunday morning. We breathe in God by reading scripture, by studying scripture, by memorizing scripture. We read books, we listen to sermons, and we sing to music that glorifies God rather than sex and lust. And then we make disciples. We breathe in God, and then we exhale the love of God on everyone we meet. 2 Corinthians 2.15 says that we are to be the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. This may mean spending countless hours pleading and praying with a couple whose marriage has fallen apart. It could mean getting up in the middle of the night to implore a rebellious teenager, maybe your own teenager, to lay down his pride and submit to God and his parents. It could mean regularly giving up your evenings after a long day of work to passionately point an addict to hope in Christ or to reassure someone in your missional community who is doubting their faith or, or struggling as a parent or a spouse. Sometimes we get to rejoice when God uses us as a tool to turn someone from their sin and to move someone from death to life. But i got to be honest with you. My experience is that these times are far exceeded by the addict who chooses to remain a slave to his addiction. By the child who continues in his rebellion. By the couple who chooses to finalize their divorce. And by the sinner who, despite your tearful plea to them, still chooses to say, like the poet, William Henley, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments to scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. So why do we do it? Why did Paul and Timothy and the apostles and countless saints throughout the generations give up their homes, their comfort, their dignity, and even their lives to follow Jesus and to make disciples. Because Jesus gave up his home, his comfort, his dignity, and his life to rescue us. Because while we were yet sinners... Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? So that we who are once far off and enemies of God could be brought near by the blood of Christ. So, as we enter a time of communion, I would invite the musicians and those serving communion to take their place. As one of the leaders of this faith family, I would call us first to examine, first, our own discipleship, and secondly, our commitment to making disciples. I would ask you today, 
When was the last time that you implored a lost person to become a follower of Christ? Who was the last new believer that you invested time and energy into seeing them grow in their knowledge and likeness to Christ? Who was the last person drowning in sin that you lovingly, patiently, and passionately invested everything you had to keep them from being destroyed by that sin? Are you following Christ in a way where you can say to others, like Paul, to follow you as you follow Christ? How many people that you live with and work with would even consider you to be a spiritual guide or an influence? Communion is a time of reflection and remembrance. We remember a sacrifice for us. And in light of that sacrifice, we remember his final command to us on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. If you're here today and you either openly deny or defy God, or maybe you acknowledge that he is God, but you know in your heart that he is not your God and you are not his follower. Today may be the day that God is calling you to surrender. Surrender control of your life. Acknowledge your sinful rebellion towards him and turn to him as your Lord and Savior. Scripture says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And as you heard, we are not promised a life of ease and wealth on this earth. But he did promise that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So I urge you today to respond. Throw yourself into the arms of Christ and then celebrate this as your first communion as a child of God. If you'd like to talk or pray with someone about anything that you heard this morning, the elders will be here available in the front after the service. And we would love to talk with you and pray with you. Pray with me. Father, thank you that you are mindful of us. Thank you that for reasons beyond our comprehension, you chose to step into our sinfulness and ransom us by your perfect sacrifice that we may be called sons and daughters of Christ. Today, God, would you work in us Work in us that we might follow you more closely. God, that we would know you more deeply and that we, would, that we would obey you more completely so that we can say to others like Paul to imitate us as we imitate you. God, may this communion once again bring to remembrance what you have done and who we are because of your love for us. In your precious name we pray. Amen.